I think the industry as a whole has blind spots. They don't understand what it means for somebody to not have access to things. And so that's where, as an Afrofuturist in tech, the conversation about who gets access and who gets left behind is on the blueprint page with the circuitry, flat out. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Some of my favorite conversations on this show have been the philosophical ones. Tech issues are rarely ever just tech issues, and understanding them requires broader intellectual and even philosophical frameworks. Ron Debert thought this might be classic republicanism. Stephen Croft thought it could be religion or spirituality. And Brandon Obunu thinks it could be Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism is described as hard to define, but easy to spot. It's an aesthetic, a philosophy, and some even call it a movement. From Octavia Butler's science fiction novels and Sunrise album Space is the Place, to probably its biggest, most popular iteration yet, Black Panther. I have great things to show you, brother. Here are your communication devices for Korea. Unlimited range, also equipped with audio surveillance system. Check these out. What unifies Afrofuturism is how it centers the Black diaspora in imagining the future. And it forces us to think about how technology intersects with questions of power, inequity, and justice. Brandon Abunu is a computational biologist, a Yale professor, and a technologist. I was raised by a single, you know, African-American woman who was really interested in science and sci-fi in a generation well before there was a language around any of this, around Afrofuturism or a blurred culture or all these things that are billion-dollar industries now. You know, so it's kind of, it's deeply existential to me. I think the work that I do is trying to create and understand uh, a future and so my whole existence is kind of embedded in this movement and is a product of this movement in some ways. Afrofuturist concerns, like how technology and science interact with Black aesthetics and experiences, seep into his work. My research focuses on disease, and I use computational and mathematical tools to kind of deconstruct all of the complex forces that drive disease. I think specifically with me, um, I always think about the ethical side of things. I think the political context works its way into all of my work because it's always an actor in, in a player in every room and every situation. The ethical side of things and their political context is something Silicon Valley is being forced to contend with more and more too. Technology is never neutral and it's always concerned with the future. So why not look to a framework that's also about imagining futures and that takes questions of power head on? Here's my conversation with Brandon Obuna. Afrofuturism seems to be a pretty difficult concept to pin down, and I, I wonder why you think that is. It, it really seems to pull on all sorts of genres and discourses and people. And I wonder whether that's intrinsic to its value. Yeah, I mean, I think that the flexibility and the breadth of it is a strength. I mean, when you think about ideas, big, bold ideas, be they impressionist art or 
what is postmodernism or I mean, all those things are broad. I think because it's Afrofuturism, people and in, in, in things that tend to have a, a house within certain kind of uh, non-white cultures, people want to be able to go and pay a ticket and go buy and go see the Afrofuturist thing. But I think that's not true for most categorical things. Um, you know, Enlightenment era that 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 involves a lot of things too. So what? So what is it? So I think the breadth of it it embodies a broad stretch of aesthetic and scientific and literary, uh, you know, forms that re- basically infuse the black experience in, in its various kind of diasporic senses uh, to ask critical questions about the future reimagine a different future or kind of utilize futuristic you know technology and things to kind of create aesthetic art um and so i think the strength of it is in its its flexibility and its leaky boundaries which is why it's able to kind of encompass a lot of different types of people doing it a lot of different things and frankly even transcending the black experience i think it it, it's now that doesn't always have to be about the black experience anymore if that's the case, what separates it from broader futurist work or science fiction, or what if if it if it loses that grounding in the black experience? Well, it doesn't it, lose it, right, it, right, right. It, it right. centers it, yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't lose the grounding. I think yeah. what it is, it's the opposite. It it, it it's everybody else gains, <laughs> right, right. I think um, everybody else gains. There's this uh, there's this amazing quote from Juno Diaz, the you know Pulitzer you know Prize winning uh, writer, where he he says that if it wasn't for race, X-Men doesn't make sense. If it wasn't for the history of breeding human beings through chattel, slavery, Dune doesn't make sense. If it wasn't for the history of colonialism and imperialism, Star Wars doesn't make sense. Right. If it wasn't for the extermination of so many indigenous First Nations, most of science fiction first context stories don't make sense. And he identifies that like basically this, right, the, the flavor and the experience of a lot of kind of colonized people, right, and, and black people in, in, in the context of Afrofuturism is at the core of a lot of these experiences anyway. I think what Afrofuturism does is it kind of centers that and it says, hey, a lot of these stories are already about these things, even if the authors themselves never articulated that. Let's name that. Let's focus on that. And now let's critically analyze these stories, build our own stories, mm. right, where those things are kind of more at the center, since they're already, right, the kind of the substrate for all of these stories and things anyway. Yeah, yeah. God, that's, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, and it, it feels like it, the added value of that framing is that it it goes some way to explain why there's been moments where this work has really sort of moved from the outskirts of our popular discourse into the center of it. Mm-hmm. And it feels like there's been other historical moments in the past century, particularly mm-hmm. where, where that's happened, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder why you think we're in one now. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just watching the, the uh, sh- first episode of a show the, last night that, that put in its credits um, before ABC, before Ahmed, and then Brianna, and then COVID. Wow. It was like it was placing the show. Wow, saying we filmed it before this moment, right? Wow, has there been like something that's a fissure this year that those three kind of things bring together that has brought this whole frame a, into the popular? What an interesting, what an interesting framing. Yeah, I, I would say that it starts twelve, thirteen years ago now. 
I would say, well, I think the modern moment starts 12, 13 years ago. I think yeah. the actual movement started decades ago. Um, I think it was Obama's election in the United States, I think, was a, was actually the first point that a lot of people actually started to think like, wow, maybe the shape of the country and the way that it is run and the people who get to have a voice and the people, right, maybe it won't forever be an uphill battle. Mm. Um, right. With this family in the White House. Right. Uh, I think the fact that there was this dramatic backlash to that, mm. which was deeply resentful of the idea that America was getting away from its core values. Right. right. As this yeah, yeah. as this kind of imaginary uh, notion of what America is. And I said, and so I think what you saw, I think it was deeply Afrofuturist about this is in during the Trump kind of years. Yeah, I mean, you saw the people kind of feared the rolling back of rights. We, Trump talked about I mean, he actively banned people from certain countries from entering. He talked about moving troops into Southside Chicago. These apocalyptic scenarios that were once kind of maybe that, that lived solely in uh, imagination became real. Um, and I think that kind of swelled up. That's really what Black Lives Matter was about. It was it was about kind of rethinking the way policing works and criminal justice works. Um, so so what I'm saying is this moment has created a flowering of people and art and ideas. Um, it's not surprising that right. You know, I think Black Panther, of course, is a seminal moment in terms of like the corporate part of this. Uh, but what, but that's important. It's not surprising that came out in 2018, right in the middle of the Trump administration. Like people were eager for kind of some new um, space to kind of rethink what what was possible. Yeah, and and who gets centered is, is sort of a um, is I think both in terms of sim the symbolic centering, but also the actual centering of who's building out our technology is kind of a central part of the challenge exactly we right. now face, right? That's so exactly I, right. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you see that. And, yep. and it seems to me a, a real, a central frame of Afrofuturism has been recognizing that the black experience and black people have been central to innovation, mm -hmm. science and mm -hmm. technology all mm -hmm. along, but have been excluded from that, though, both of those frames. And I, I wonder when you look at sort of the culture first that we've built up around Silicon Valley, how you view that. I mean, this is the white founder, white young male founder mythology, right? And yeah, yeah. No, I think this is one where I think I'm, I'm conflicted in a good way. I think the two halves of myself helped me have this conversation. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley, these are, you know, I'm of that generation and these mm -hmm. are my personal friends. And, you know, I have, you know, I've had companies and I do, I innovate in this space. And I think what I love about the tech space is the fact is the lack of, you know, this, the institution of disruption is there are rules that society has kind of built in place that are arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And so why should we rely on taxis just for people to get around? We can innovate around that and come up with a kind of a much more efficient way that's profitable for people and helps everyone get around. And I think that notion of there are these margins in society that can be exploited um, are, are what make the tech world so wonderful. And I think right, are, are, are the reason why they've been able to create so many cool and impressive and useful things and will continue mm. to. I think the problem with that demographic, however, with people who operate there is mm. you kind of have to have a type of optimism to work that way. It's kind of almost adorably optimistic, endlessly, effusively optimistic about possibility, 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 possibility. 
And so, frankly, I think they just have, I think the industry as a whole has this problem with the notion that they're barriers, right? They have blind spots. They don't understand what it means for somebody to not have access to things. And because they're so optimistic about the way a self-driving car will work and all the problems it can help, they're not reflexively ever going to think about the people that could be left behind. It's just not part of the thought process up front, right? And so that's where, right, as an Afrofuturist and people who are familiar with that framework in tech, the conversation about who gets access and who gets left behind is on the blueprint page with the circuitry, flat out, before you've thought about anything. When the code, before the code is written, you've thought about, okay, well, you know, does discrimination actually happen in Uber? And it does, right? So I think that's where that industry has had blind spots and really can benefit from people, you know, with this type of perspective. I recently spoke to Laura Murphy, who did the audit of Facebook. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw that, the human rights audit of Facebook. She's a sort of former ACLU legal thinker. And uh, a big theme that comes out of that type of approach is that, and we see this in, in other sectors as well, clearly, that lack of diversity changes how what you are as a company, what you build, all of these things. I'm wondering if you think that's enough. I mean, do you think that if, if, if there were more people with a broader range of experiences sitting in Facebook or Uber, as you say, do you think they'd build something different? Well, no, but it's a start. Mm. It's a start. And I think it's certainly, and I think an, an important start. So no, I, I think, and you know, there are debates about, well, who is the right type of representation to have? And I think what I, what I hear tech people often doing in this conversation is doing the thing where they try to derail the conversation by saying, well, what, did, what do you mean by diversity? What do you mean by what, these people? No, 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 exactly no. Who have, and exactly who? Yeah, 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 right. Exactly who? Yeah. Wait, 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 I, yeah. I find that's a relevant conversation to have, but that's not a reason to continue doing the things that we were doing them. Um, so whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever thing we over dinner or over drinks we come up with for the type of representation we want, I think that is a critical first step. Mm. Um, because yeah, I mean, you know, my blind spots, for example, I mean, I, you know, I just wrote an article about data in the HIV AIDS pandemic. And, you know, I think about my own blind spots with regards to the LGBTQ community, you know what I mean? And I think, I think about the things that I missed through the years, um, you know, even as a, an African-American in Mm. low-income housing, you know what I'm Mm. saying? So my point is the different voices do offer lenses that are critical for being able to think about this. And if you look at a lot of these amazing technologies from facial recognition to predictive policing and all this other stuff and, and you know, to self-driving cars, to Uber, all of these things have elements where if you don't have someone in the room who understands what it means to get passed over by a taxi, right? If that's not something that you have, then that's going to be a serious problem. You're going to miss out on a, a you know, a perspective that could have allowed that, you know, that, uh, piece of, that device to be used more effectively by more people. Yeah, you mentioned predictive policing, and I'm obviously of the sort of whole range of problems we're talking about at the moment with various technologies and platforms, and that one seems to be one that Afrofuturism could be most <laughs> targeted in its both critique mm-hmm. and contribution mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I wonder how you see sort of algorithmic bias and mm -hmm. bias in AI systems and mm -hmm. maybe particularly in, in, in facial recognition technology mm -hmm. where we're now actually seeing some companies sort of step back from the deployment of this technology because of outside thinkers and academics and journalists pointing out the core biases here. And I mean, is that a sign that this broader lens is actually working? No, these things, I think algorithm bias is a, just a direct kind of offspring of the Afrofuturist perspective. And it's at, like, all of it. Because, you know, the, if you look at, there's literature where kind of allusions to these types of things kind of have existed for so long. So the notion that a computer right, is going to be responsible for giving bail, right, you know, with no human behind it, or, uh, you know, in the context of anti-terrorism, right, hunting down war and, or arresting people is, you know, I think anybody with any Afrofuturist leanings, anybody who's with any Afrofuturist leaning, number one, and anybody who is familiar with technology and has ever been racially profiled, right, would immediately see the problems there. I think the problem, the reason why this stuff was not a part of the conversation up front is because the people designing the technology have never been affected by it. Like, if you, I mean, being mistaken for somebody else in a criminal context, I mean, there's humiliating, and then there's 30,000 feet, and then there's that. I mean, it's, it's just like, it, it's, it's deeply ex existentially damaging in this type of way. And in the context of algorithmic bias, there's nobody even to blame anymore, mm. or, right? So to speak, mm. right? right? So, so basically, you've punted responsibility to an algorithm, right? Which now automatically strips everyone. So we, we talk about uh, we talk about George Floyd, right? In the context of George Floyd, there was somebody we could take to trial. Mm. That 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 accountability is gone essentially, right? Yeah. When you're talking about an algorithm. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think this perspective that thinks about who's going to get left behind, what's going to happen when it breaks, who's going to get, who loses jobs when it's built, right? I think all of these dimensions are things that flow naturally out of an Afrofuturistic perspective that, again, is centering kind of the history in the present with regards to Black people and is basically now uh, transposing that onto how the future will be built vis-a-vis uh, -vis modern technology and big tech. Yeah, like as you point out, the, the the criminal justice system is like ground zero for a lot of this conversation, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that any algorithmic system, right, where you have a um, you ha that relies on input data that's supposed to build a predictive system for an individual. We have to be extremely careful about the type of data being used. And I think there's a lot of data in psychology going back decades with, with regards to stereotype that when it comes to Black faces and Black characteristics, the diversity within Black people is just washed out. Like people just, yeah. like they migrate all the differences towards a stereotype. And that is the thing that most people use when they're kind of dealing with an individual. And what you see is the algorithmization of that. If you look mm -hmm. at kind of the facial recognition data in particular, um, yeah, there was just this underrepresentation of the details of Black people's faces and shapes and bodies, which are no less variant, right, than any other types of faces. 
So, right, when you take that type of problem and too little data, because again, the people designing the algorithms don't have an appreciation for that type of diversity, you create a perfect storm for individuals to be mistakenly arrested because the algorithm flatly does not have enough information um, to, to, to properly kind of, you know, uh, disambiguate one face mm-hmm. from another. And even it feels like dermatology, right? What's fascinating is like, so my point is these are just the algorithmization of problems that exist. Dermatology has these like skin complexion scales. If you actually look at the complexion scales, it appreciates a much wider diversity of kind of white people's skin color. Yeah. I think like Brad Pitt is considered light brown on the scale, but then like, <laughs> right. Or something like, I mean, I'm serious. And then, but like black people are kind of like lumped into like two mm. categories. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When in fact the gradient, right. If you actually have a fair gradient, right. You would have kind of distribution across kind of skin cues. Um, and basically if you take that and you put it in terms of an algorithm, well, then you're, you're going to get uh, a lot of mistakes. But even that, even that framing, which I think is, is, isn't, is one that in many ways is a, is a framing that's being driven by tech companies themselves, which is, this isn't a core problem in our technology. It's a data problem. And so in response to some of this, the um, image data set biases in Google's data set, for example, mm-hmm. they've made deals with African countries to get mm-hmm. access to databases of faces, mm-hmm. right? So more data will therefore mm-hmm. solve this problem. And and I, I feel like as we project into the future, which many of these companies clearly do and are, I mean, this rebranding of Facebook as a, as a metaverse co- company mm-hmm. is a futurist reframing because that thing doesn't mm-hmm. exist yet. Right. And it's one based on collecting vastly more data than we currently collect right. in the hopes that reality will be reflected in that future yep. world. Yep. So when you look at some of these projections these companies mm-hmm. are making, how do you, how do you use a future, your futurist lens on what they are proposing and doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I just, just flatly the notion that the technology is independent of the, you know, the data and the things that you're using to build mm-hmm. it, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't even make engineering sense. Right. I think the, the, the data that's being used um, is a part of uh, the, the basic structure of the technology. Mm-hmm. But moreover, more broadly, with regards to the way that these, these technologies are being considered, um, I think we point again this is the thing, even for the, the colleagues and friends of mine in this industry who are nice people, mm. and I think that they are, and I really think that they do mean well, and I think that they, they really look to disruption as a way to kind of create equity. And I, under, I understand that social and political leaning and lens. I really do. Um, it's just when you, they're, 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 the natural inclination to look towards that just has these shocking blind spots. So this is what's ironic, right? You have the the notion that uh, the algorithm will do better than people will, right? Again, that's just a, that is a naively optimistic. Sure, when you have a judge giving out bail, right? In these kind of highly subjective ways based on whether or not they got their coffee this morning, I think we all want to improve on that, right? but the notion is it, it, you must have somebody who's been negatively affected by that outcome in the room if you are going to have, you know, if you are going to have a conversation about how to build an equitable, algorithmic driven bail process. And the last thing I'll say about this is 
I think tech in this way can borrow from Hollywood's model, which is not by no means great and historically has been also broken. But what I will say, uh, I think there's a series on HBO called uh, Watchmen, award-winning from a couple of years ago. And I, you know, I listened to David Lindelof and what was amazing about the way he described, he described the process of building that show and it sounded a lot like a cocky, successful white guy at first, but he talks about he had to allow himself to be uncomfortable in the writer's room. And he welcomed, I think it was an African woman police officer or something like that, law enforcement was in there. And like, he had to say, ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Hadn't thought of that. And, 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 and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he's perfect or the show is perfect, but I really appreciated the fact that you have this person who has been enormously successful, got a pot of money, really could have just sprinted to make them this thing himself, frankly. But he welcomed these other voices in the room and it led to a product that was outstanding. I think tech needs a similar model, right? Where you have actual voices of people affected by the issue. And that would be a way um, we, we could kind of imagine these futures w- without these blind spots up front. And of course, tech companies and the tech industry in various forms is now extending much beyond just the building of sort of tools and products and getting into spaces that are much closer to your academic world around predictive genetics, gene editing, various biotech forms that are now sort of bringing the body into, in a literal way, into the building of companies and systems and tools. I'm wondering how you reflect on that, given that's of your, of that, that's your world oh. and is, all right, I don't even know how to frame that question. Yeah. But. No, 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 no. I think you framed it beautifully. I think you framed it beautifully. So um, this is the one that I think about the most. Mm. And I think my work directly intersects with, and I think the lab, like my actual laboratory work doesn't squarely deal with the po- political side of this, but it does indirectly. Uh, what I'll say about this is, so 2022 coming up will be the 25th anniversary of the release of the film Gattaca, which I saw when I was a young man, and it had a profound impact on me because I was able to resonate with the discrimination component. I think it drew this beautiful parallel between kind of genetic discrimination in this future and the type of discrimination we had. I was experiencing as a young man. I was, a, you know, I was a victim of, you know, police. I'm a victim of police brutality and police violence multiple times over. Um, and today where we are, we're at this point where we have, we're trying to come up with predictive. There's two kind of technological things where this is a problem. Mm-hmm. One is, um, predictive genetics, right? The idea is, okay, well, I can look at something in your genome and I can tell you, I can predict that you're going to get diabetes or something mm-hmm. like that. You have a risk. And of course, this was this was in the film, right? The baby is born and they take his genome and they say 97% chance of dying before the age of 50, blah, 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 blah. It's amazing how well that film captured some of that. So we're at a point now, we have predictive scores. On I, I'm, on, I'm on one of the genomic, uh, you know, I won't say which one, but I'm on one of them. And on there says, I have a very, very high chance of getting type 2 diabetes. Now, here's the thing. Nobody in my family has type, type 2 diabetes. Nobody. Okay. So why is it? And I, I certainly don't. Maybe I will. But like I think it said before a certain age that I'm approaching. Why did that technology predict that I was going to get type 2 diabetes? It predicted it because of the population that it tested it on. 
they identified some genetic markers that were associated with diabetes in that population. So in that group that they looked at, but here's the thing. If you look at my mother's generation, the things that they ate, the way that they live, I'm a, right, I'm a highfalutin hipster who eats gluten-free and, <laughs> right, and, and eats C10 and all this stuff like that. So what I'm saying is that dimension is not in, it doesn't consider the fact that African-Americans have changed our lifestyles through time. And so that predictive algorithm is based on a different context. I know to ask that question about those predictive algorithms for genetics because I'm in the house with an African-American woman who didn't have the opportunities that I have. You see what I mean? So yeah. I'm able to now say, you know what? You need to be more careful with your predictive algorithms because there's things about the way people live that are, you're not capturing or that could have skewed your former results, right? But it, but it, it's beyond just the nurture side of it. The biases exist in the nature side too. Absolutely. I mean, there's, a, there's a connection to phrenology here, right? That is Absolutely. Deep. No, absolutely. Yeah. There, there are things that, I mean, on all fronts, um, there are things. So for example, if you come up with a genetic screen for having chronic disease in the United States and you do it in the 1950s, right? And, right or something like that you are going to recover a light or, or, or exposure to some kind of pollutant or a range of diseases. You are going to return alleles associated with having black skin. That has nothing to do with the disease. That marker has to do with the way a population has been treated unquestionably, right? That has no mechanistic relationship to the disease. If you give a population worse food or you give them kind of a food insecurity, you are going to return genes out of a study like that. So what I'm saying is, again, but again, the people who design this stuff completely blind to this, that it's, it, there has to be kind of a genetic marker for type 2 diabetes. And of course, type 2 diabetes in particular is one where the, the genetics is messy, very, very, very mm -hmm. messy because mm -hmm. people have not considered these things. So number one, so first that's predictive genetics and genomics. And I think this perspective on how do actually, how does context matter? And what are the populations that you're testing it on? And are the predictive things that you're, that you're coming up with, do they, do they actually apply across populations and context? People haven't asked that critically. They're starting to now, but people haven't asked that critically. And I think that's an absence of an Afrofuturist lens in that space. And that's what I'm hoping to bring. The second arena is CRISPR, mm. is genetic modification, okay? Which is related in some ways, because the idea there is, all right, well, there's going to be certain alleles or mutations that are associated with good outcomes. And I want my kid to have a good outcome. So, right, fix my children so they can have a good outcome, right? The problem, of course, there is the good outcome genes that you're trying to engineer into your children very well might be associated to have with, with nothing that has to do with, you know, being a good athlete or being good at school. It might be associated with things. And I think like you, you look at you look at the scandals like, you know, I mean, I teach at an Ivy League school. You look at the scandals with like parents paying to get their kids in. And this is a really, really big problem. Right. That's not a, a function of their inherent intelligence. No, it has nothing to do with it. And those types, that's a proxy yeah. for the types of social privileges that give, that give me more access to things than a lot of my friends growing up. It's not because I'm better. It's because I had my mother and they didn't have my mother. So I think I think these are blind spots in a lot of kind of the modern genetic technologies that I think absolutely are going to cause serious problems if we don't get this lens uh, in at, at the ground level right away.
how, how do we do that? How do we get that? I mean, we're fighting against hundreds of years of history here yeah. um, that are embedded in how we build things and our science, like you say. And yeah. like one, how do we do that? And two, are there just things we shouldn't build until we do? I mean, it feels like editing the human genome is like a, a pretty major step for yeah. us to go without incorporating sort of a broader range of thinking here. Well, first of all, you know, I'll give credit to you, right, and the individuals in the show. I mean, look at the conversation we're having, right? So, you know, there's a lot of people you could have had on, you chose to have me to talk about this, it, you know, some of my points. It starts here, and I think that relates to um, Lindelof and the Watchmen example. I, I think mm. what I, I think, I think what Lindelof understood is the same thing that maybe you understand, and that the genetic community, which I'm a part of, genetic, right, you know, needs to understand is, the reason why you have people who are different than you in the room or have conversations that are kind of different or, you know, you don't, you don't have to be uncomfortable. It's just different. The reason mm -hmm. why you, you welcome different perspectives is because you want to get it better, not just because you, you're trying to appeal to some kind of um, guilt or, or some notion that I have to feel better about myself by having a, a person from, you know, from South Asia in the room or an LBGTQ person in the room. It's that, if I want to get, like, personally, I think genetic modification has the potential to help, particularly in the agricultural sector, billions of people. Yeah. So I think I'm all, I'm a GM, I mean, I'm not so much a fanatic, <laughs> but I'm, a, I'm, I'm yeah. with it as a technology. But if you want to talk about, right, uh, uh, why girls don't do well in math or something like that, right, and wiring that, like, we have decades of data to talk about the way that women have been denied opportunities. I have, again, I was raised by a woman smarter than I was. I mean, do you honestly think the difference between me and, and my mother is genetic? And that's why I got to be a fancy professor and she lived most of her life struggling? I mean, that's just, it's embarrassing, right? It, it, to even consider that. So what I'm saying is you, you need to have people like me and my mom, frankly, in, in a room and figure out a smart way to have what are all the, you want to you want you want to come up with CRISPR for type two diabetes. What are all the things that actually can influence type two diabetes risk? Have you accounted for food deserts? Have you accounted for education? Have you accounted for all of these things which can influence uh, the, what the diet uh, and, and the health consequences are of people? If those people aren't in the room and they aren't, um, then you're going to get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, nobody wins. That's not even good for the financial part of the company. So that would be my kind of uh, analogy that I draw and I think is part of the solution. These conversations about technology in the future, I guess, are always never neutral and ultimately come down almost always to power and inequities that exist in our societies. And I wonder if you think that political, those political realities and the socioeconomic realities are, are embedded enough in these conversations at the moment. I, th I think that, um, I, no, no, they're yeah. not uh, embedded, not even nearly enough. And I think, you know, tech has this deeply complicated relationship with the notion that it's supposed to share things. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I get that, right? I think it's kind of it's deeply libertarian at, 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 at its core. And, you know, there are aspects of that which, again, are admirable. The notion that, you know, with a unique idea and a couple of friends, I can kind of completely upend an old whack institution. That's dope. Right. Who doesn't like that? But I think with that, I think unfortunately with that, yeah, the notion that everybody doesn't have access to that or, you know, 
for example, even as an African-American man, right, right, one of the things I've had to open my eyes to is the power of gender. Mm. I have watched with my own two eyes the type of respect I get because I'm tall and I have a deep voice and I'm a man and I can be authoritative. For me to deny that that is a factor in how easily I'm able, people are able to take me seriously, I mean, it's just, again, it's an embarrassment to suggest anything other than that. And so what I'm saying is now, of course, for me to consider the fact that me being a man and a straight cis man might have benefited me from some ways, in order for me to kind of acknowledge that, right, that runs in opposition to the fact that, you know, I've worked my butt off and my ideas are good and I've had to build the stuff that I have from, you know, relative scratch. So you have these two things in my brain. And both intentions sometimes. Right, right. right. And I think part of me wants to be like, no, these things that I have going for me have nothing to do with why. But I think I've learned how to live with both of these ideas. Hmm. And I think we all can. But I think with me, and this is, again, this is flows from the spirit of Afrofuturism, where you're always thinking about who's not in the room and who's left behind and why. I'm always thinking about there are definitely people in this society with my talent and they don't get to do the things that I do. So how can I rewire society? And I think I've worked that into my tech ethic. Like that's Mm. when tech has made it when everybody can. and, And I think, you know, the world's a worse place because my mom didn't get the opportunity to contribute to science. We, she would have been better than I would have been if she had the opportunity. So how can I actually get the most innovation out of the most people? And I think that's the thing that I think that's where we need to go if we're ever going to kind of change tech, um, you know, forever in this regard. Yeah. And what's that? What's that future then? I mean, Afrofuturism is sort of burst out into the mainstream here with through Hollywood, through media um, and the work of you and others so how, how do you see it transforming the tech world yeah no i think i think uh a, a lot of kind of black artistic creations right, have been about I me mean, even hip-hop right even hip-hop's deeply um you know uh, uh bragging culture about the things that i have and the house that i have even that kind of stuff has an afrofuturist element because it's not about where you're living it's about what you're at your ambition is you think about no, Terry, you think about Biggie Small's first single, Juicy, that is absolutely not about where he's living. It's about like this world that he wishes he had. So this, this aspirational kind of component, um, I, I think is key. And so my point is, art will always lead the charge because art can always kind of create these types of ambitions, right? So, and I think Black Panther was important. I think it's, you know, it's a billion dollar industry and it's Marvel and it's hyper capitalist, but I think that created this vision of a technological future. Now you have right a cultural framework uh, for people to to think about what it means for Shuri to be kind of I think her and Tony Stark the smartest people in the Marvel universe. Um, you have curricula being developed around that. So I think I think those cultural and artistic things are an important first step and have to happen. And I think with that come you know there are now coding programs that are kind of um, trying to prepare young people. That, you know, there's young a lot a lot a lot of women in computing and black girl code. So I think it starts in art. It kind of then trickles into these you know curricular things for very very young people. Um, and I think you see it already. I mean, you're seeing even in the TikTok world, you're seeing a tech savvy generation of young women and young children of color 
And I think with that, with the, what you want with Afrofuturism in the positive sense, in the, in the ameliorative sense, what we hope to create is lifting of the sense of impossibility and constraint. We want children, black children, poor children, indigenous children to now begin to think that there aren't limits to what I can do. And they have the means through a curriculum, through access, through resources to be able to build things. So hopefully we have a lot of companies that are going to be coming up, startups from, you know, little black high school kids, the way you have from white high school kids for generations. We, we want to see that because they have the means, the access and the knowledge and the sense of possibility. So I'm hopeful for it. Again, it starts with these kind of artistic imaginations that have filtered into the public. And now I think it's time for people like me and you and all of us to help to kind of uh, do what we can to create this possibility for young people. That was my conversation with Brandon Obunu. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Dania Ali. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.